Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us for this latest episode of the INC Preview Show. My name's Carl Bermich, and joining me after his month-long break from the show is John Marsh in MMA. John, thank you once again for joining us. And I have to say, John Kelly, pretty good job in your place. Yeah, the Johns are doing a good job on this show. They're picking up your slack, Carl. Uh, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Um, but it's it's great to be back. Great to be back on the INC Live channel. My first appearance on the INC Live channel. So it's great to be here. Thanks for always as having me. And uh, let's talk about this pay-per-view. I'm excited. And I want to say a big thank you as well to anybody who tuned in for the first preview show on INC Live. Um, and I have to say it has been a success because I checked the analytics for the video. And when we were on the main channel, we only had about like an average watch time of about 90 seconds. This time we're up to about 10 minutes. So the people who actually seek out this content are sticking around, which uh, makes a welcome change. And I want to say a big thank you to anybody who has been supporting us all this time. If you want to continue to do so, you can do on our Patreon channel. It's patreon.com forward slash it's not cage fighting. We're also on Twitter at twitter.com slash incagefighting. Uh, a big thank you to anybody who can follow us, give us any kind of support. This is a purely amateur project and any sort of money that comes to us will go back into the system. I've got the new microphone, which I'm very proud of. Um, and again, thank you very much for the continued support. With that being said, John, people want to hear us talking about fighting. And I think the first place we need to start is just over two weeks ago, but we're still feeling the effects of what happened at UFC 257. Your reaction to that one? Yeah, of course. I mean, totally shocked that it happened. I, I was pulling for Poirier. I was cheering for him. I did not like his chances, did not expect him to win, and especially not in that fashion, the early knockout. Um, I actually gave him more of like a 10% chance of getting that early knockout in the first few rounds, and it, it, it happened. So what an incredible knockout. Uh, I was completely shocked. I had some friends over, and... It, it was just an amazing moment. How did you feel, Carl? Well, I picked Connor to win this. If you go back and watch the uh, prediction show, I felt that part of the reason why Connor took this fight was his belief that he would be able to get it done against Dustin. I think that if he didn't feel like he could beat him, he wouldn't have taken the fight. To an extent, that worked to his detriment. I think he seemed a bit too relaxed in there and just thought, hey, this guy, it, it kind of even admitted it, this guy's a southpaw, I'm going to fight him like a boxer, to prepare for a Manny Pacquiao fight and eventually that just came back to haunt him but remember when people put, were putting forward these hypothetical fights about how Conor would do against different opponents I remember a lot of people saying if he fought Gagey Gagey would eat that leg up so what we expected Gagey to do Dustin Poirier did yeah, and I really didn't expect it because it's a southpaw versus southpaw matchup. I would have expected an orthodox striker like Gaethje to have a lot more success with those leg kicks, but Poirier was able to do it through switching stances. He hit a couple inside leg kicks. He hit a couple hard outside calf kicks, really shut down the calf of Connor. And that that I laugh when you said that thing about Manny Pacquiao. I just think Connor is delusional. He he'll make up any excuse he can. Uh, he lost the fight. I don't think Manny Pacquiao was on his mind at all uh, for that fight. I mean, it might have been, but for the wrong reasons. So that's a completely delusional excuse. I mean, he's, give, he's given Poirier some credit. I mean, the dude got knocked out cold, though, so he can't really make up the, his typical excuses about uh, slowing down or his foot being hurt or, you know, the guy makes excuses every time he, he loses. He has a hard time with coping with losing. Um, and... I never like to see that with fighters. I, I, I saw that 
with Tony Ferguson after the Gaethje fight, and that was a big factor going into the Oliveira fight. I mean, this guy, he had some personal problems in his life. He, he doesn't accept losses. You want to hear a fighter accept the loss, really learn from it, and go about their next fight in a realistic approach, and Conor McGregor's not going to do that. So it's really interesting to see where the career of Conor goes from here, and I'm really excited for the, uh, the future of Poirier. I hope the guy explodes in popularity like he deserves to, gets some big fights, and gets that undisputed championship like he deserves. I think that's one of the good things that's maybe come out of the, the Conor Poirier aftermath is when a big-name fighter loses, they're naturally going to get the focus of the attention. The big media stories, they're going to run with anything that's going to get the clicks. What's been interesting to see with Conor versus Poirier is, yes, Conor has been getting the majority of the coverage, but there's just as many outlets praising Dustin Poirier for his performance, which doesn't normally happen. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess they have no choice, right? I mean, he, he knocked out the big, the most popular fighter in the world. Um, so I think he is getting the credit he deserves, um, but he still has a lot more coming to him, in my opinion. I, I think in terms of compensation, he definitely deserves a lot more. He's one of the, the best fighters in the sport right now, and he definitely deserves a million-dollar payday for his next few fights, and I hope he gets it. Um, who, what do you think happens next, Carl? You think they have a trilogy? You think they moved separate directions with Poirier? Personally, I, I think that a trilogy is not going to happen right away. A trilogy will happen, but it won't happen at this moment in time. I can see Conor either going for... I think the Nate Diaz trilogy fight is going to be the one that they do next. If that doesn't happen, I can see him versus Tony Ferguson. I think that'd be a good action matchup. I think Tony still has an element of star power even after the Oliveira loss. As for Dustin, he's going to push for Oliveira. I think it should be Oliveira. But I can see the UFC wanting to make him versus Chandler. I think they seem really high on Chandler, especially after what he did to Dan Hooker. Yeah, I understand they're high on Chandler, but... Like Poirier said, he's got a long way to go. We got Oliveira on an eight-fight win streak, Carlos Diego Ferreira on a six-fight, or, or excuse me, uh, Dariush on a six-fight uh, win streak. Even a guy like Gaethje coming off of one loss, I think, deserves a chance at, at the undisputed belt a little more than Chandler. I mean, the guy's got one win. It was a nice win over Hooker. We, we haven't even really mentioned that yet, but um, I don't think it was an ex extremely conclusive result i mean we didn't see much happen and then the first clean punch that really landed just knocked hooker down and put him out so it was a it was a great debut from chandler but it's it's he fought for two minutes we saw one real punch from him land you can't give a guy a title shot when there's so many more deserving contenders uh, that soon i noticed a lot of the uh, talking about usc 257 it's sort of Maybe you're subconsciously um, ignoring UFC 258. This, if 257 was that big wild party happening in the middle of the night, this is sort of the hangover because, yes, you've got a main event which does have some compelling elements to it. Obviously, it's former teammates going at it. But outside of that, it's not the best that the UFC could do. I think we've got to call a spade a spade. When you look at how good last night's fight night was and some of the stack cards that they had there you look at 259 where you've got three title fights and loads of compelling number one contender matches this feels like a real afterthought 
Yeah, I agree with that there. And it has to do with the timing, honestly. We're, we're talking about 257. That was January 23rd. And then this is February 13th. And we have another pay-per-view. It's only like a three-week break. So I think pay-per-views do much better when you have that four- to six-week break. You have that time to anticipate it. And that time to really appreciate those pay-per-view cards. You have to maybe see a fight night or two. You realize that there there are tiers to the level of UFC quality cards. And we have, I mean, we got a great card last night. Arguably a better card from top to bottom than this pay-per-view. So it really dilutes the pay-per-views. It, it really dilutes Kamara Usman's stock, in my opinion, honestly. Because I think Usman's the best fighter in the world right now. Now that Khabib is retired, I, I do have Usman at pound for pound number one. And to put him on a, an underwhelming card like this, he's the only title fight. There's not really any star power beneath him. Uh, it really kind of undermines Kamara Usman. It lowers his stock. It, it's not going to do good pay-per-views. It's going to do 100, 125,000, something like that. And that's a shame because even though Usman's not the most exciting fighter. I think he is the most technical, the most dominant fighter uh, in MMA right now. And I'm excited to watch him fight, uh, like I'm sure most of the hardcore fans are. But in terms of casual interest, uh, this card is not going to do well. And I don't think it's good. it makes sense either from a business perspective, because I argue this with John when we discussed 257. Someone like Conor McGregor is going to do great numbers regardless, because he's one of the biggest names in the sport. Adesanya, who headlines in March, is did something like 700,000, buys when he fought Paulo Costa. So in my opinion, he doesn't need the extra title fights and the extra big matches to help sell that show. What makes more sense to me is if you have, say, um, Aljamain Sterling versus Piotr Jan or Nunes versus Anderson, put those fights on Usman's undercard. Because if you ask people to pay for a Kamara Usman show, just for Kamara Usman, you're going to have a lot of people who are maybe turned off by that because of his fighting style. But if Kamara Usman is headlining a free title fight main card with a lot of stacked big fights underneath it, more people are going to say, hey, I might be more inclined to watch this. That's what they did with 245, and that did, what, 400,000 buys, which is no shame in that at all. Yeah, I mean, just pulling up this card for 259, I mean, what a ridiculous card this is. From top to bottom, there are great fights. Even on the prelims, like Benavidez versus Askarov, two top five flyweights are on the prelims. Uh, I don't understand that really at all. So, I mean, I think the UFC structuring their bouts has been particularly terrible lately with who they put on the main card, who they put on pay-per-views, the way they're structuring these fight nights versus pay-per-views. I understand it's a chaotic time. There's a lot going on in the world right now with the, the coronavirus, obviously, and travel restrictions. But I don't think the UFC is really putting a lot of thought into the way they're structuring their cards lately. And a lot of people think this is kind of nitpicking. It's something that doesn't really matter much. I, I disagree. I mean, I think the structuring of the cards is really important. The higher on the card, the more prestigious, the more exposure you get. And you got to really structure these these fight cards a lot better because – doing mistakes like putting Benavidez and Askarov on the prelims. Not even the last prelim. According to Tapology right now, there are two prelims ahead of that fight, which is just inexcusable, really. So I hope to see the UFC ordering these cards a little bit better. And once they have some their bearings underneath them a little bit more, once the virus gets under control, I hope we see some improvements. But right now, they're not doing the best job of it. 
And speaking of prelims, that brings us on to the 258 prelims. So we've got the card coming up on your screen right now. Anything that stands out for you on this one, John? There are some decent fights on the undercard. Um, nothing incredible, in my opinion. The best fight on the undercard is going to be Ricky Simone versus Brian Kelleher, in my opinion. That's a really fun fight. Uh, I think it's been booked out once or twice before, and now we're finally getting to see it. I'm a huge fan of Bobby Green and Jim Miller, two veterans of the game. I'm excited to see how they match up, but not much in terms of uh, compelling undercard fights. What about you? Anything catching your eye here? I share the same sentiment as you. I think that Ricky Simone and Brian Kelleher could be a lot of fun. We've seen that Simone is a hell of a good wrestler, got himself a good win earlier on this year. Kelleher, um, I wouldn't say he's elite level, but again, another fun fighter. Great submission instincts. We saw that guillotine he got against Ode Osborne, which I think was on a uh, 246, so he was on a Conor undercard. Got a great submission there. Just a fun action fighter. Jim Miller versus Bobby Green. I, I mentioned this when I did the recap video, uh, when I looked at last night's fight card, and I talked about Clay Guida and Michael Johnson. A lot of people hate the idea of the veteran guys sticking around past their prime. But in my opinion, the best way to handle those guys is to pit them against one another. They're never going to be champion. They're never going to have like another final run. So just put them against one another. You can still get a bit of fun. I thought Guida versus Johnson was quite an entertaining fight. And I think uh, we can get the same thing from Miller and Bobby Green, especially considering Green has been so good in this sort of apex either. Yeah, the UFC usually takes these veteran type of guys and either does what you say, match them up with one another, or they just feed them to like the top 15, which I don't like to see. I think there's some some big uh, squash matches going on at times with older older fighters, um, like really what happened last night with Frankie Edgar and Sanhagen. We don't speak um, of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, one thing about these guys is they usually match them up with other like middle-tier guys, and I don't think either of these... I mean, these guys are definitely somewhat past their prime, but... I don't think they're super declined. I still think they've got a lot of fight in them. I don't think either of them are particularly bad in terms of cardio or durability. Miller is a little bit uh, of a concern in terms of his cardio and durability, but Green is still a really great fighter in my opinion, and that's why you see Green is a pretty significant favorite in the betting lines here. Um, but usually they match these guys up with like fellow 25 to 50th ranked lightweights, and they usually pr uh, produce some pretty entertaining fights. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this one. I think it'll likely be a Bobby Green decision, um, but you never know with these guys. I mean, a lot of people give Bellator grief for all of these old guy fights, but I'd much rather have the old guys fight one another than feeding them to like some young lion who's going to destroy them in 30 seconds. Yeah, at least we'll get to see them match up a little bit here. Neither of these guys are. are great finishers jim miller definitely the better finisher bobby green's kind of like a, a decision machine uh, i've got a friend who actually has a funny uh little thing about green is that green really loves the anticipation of hearing a split decision like he loves that moment when they read one scorecard one scorecard and then that last scorecard bobby green lives for that moment and he'll do anything to make his fights as close as possible for that to happen so that's likely what happens here. I think it's going to be like a 29-28 decision either way. I'll pick green by decision. What about uh, Simone Kelleher? Do you have a pick for that one, Carl? I'm favoring Vicky Simone based on the wrestling. Yeah, that's definitely the right 
I mean, he's the rightful favorite. Um, but right now, Kelleher's a, a two-to-one underdog, and considering that Kelleher will compete in the striking, he's a hard guy to outgrapple. He's fought a lot of good grapplers, and he's done pretty well. Uh, I think it'll be close. I think this is going to be another close decision. Ricky Simone, not a great finisher, even though he did uh, finish that Perillo guy just a few weeks ago. I think Kelleher is more live for a finish. I think Kelleher will make this fight competitive everywhere. So Kelleher as a 2-1 to one underdog might be an interesting bet. But ultimately, I will pick Simone on, by decision because he's just such an athlete. He hustles. He has output. He'll shoot 20 takedowns a fight, and that's going to be hard to overcome. So I think it'll be competitive, but still go with Simone decision. A couple of other interesting names on there. Rodolfo Vieira, 7-0. A great submission record to his name. Uh, Gillian Robertson, yes, she's coming off a loss. Very entertaining fighter. One of the few unranked flyweights who I really take the time to watch because her jits are, are fantastic at times. Yeah, and um, Miranda Maverick is actually coming up. She's uh, kind of a prospect in the flyweight division. I, I like that fight for Maverick. Uh, Robertson has kind of been underwhelming me a little bit mm -hmm. lately. She got rather dominated by uh, Talia Santos in her last fight. Just That was like like six weeks ago or something like that. And Maverick looked really sharp against Jojua on uh, the Khabib card. Her striking looked really good there. She busted Jojua up and ended up stopping her with a, a cut stoppage in round one. So I think Maverick looks pretty promising. Uh, I think she's the rightful favorite there against Maverick. I think Maverick likely gets the uh, the victory there. But I agree. Robertson is a pretty entertaining fighter. She has great grappling, good top game. So it'll be a close fight. Let's certainly hope so. Um, now we'll go on to fight number one. You mentioned before that there was some question marks about the UFC's decision-making when it comes to what goes on the main card. I bring this up because fight number one on that card is Maki Pitolo versus Julian Marquez. And a lot of people are instantly looking up their Wikipedia articles and thinking, who the hell are these two guys? Which I mean, no disrespect to both of them, but you look at some of the fights which are on the prelims, you look at maybe like a Bilal Muhammad, a guy who's ranked... He's on the prelims, yet Patola versus Marquez is a main card fight. Yeah, that's a very reasonable criticism. I, I actually kind of like this fight from, from a main card opener perspective because I think the chances of it being like a wild brawl are really high. Marquez hasn't fought in a long time. I feel like over two, two and a half years, but his fights were really chaotic. He tends to brawl on the feet, get really reckless. I mean, both these guys are very similar. They like to get in reckless brawls on the feet. They also like to offensive grapple a little bit at times, and both of them are decent grapplers. So I think this is a pretty evenly matched fight. I think there's a good chance these guys get in some crazy back-and-forth punching exchanges on the feet. And I think it will be exciting, entertaining. Um, in terms of betting odds for this one, I think Patolo is a plus-150 underdog. I actually see this fight more 50-50, so... Patolo as an underdog here might be a good bet. And I think I actually picked Patolo uh, to win this one. Patolo has been a lot more active lately. Uh, he fought Stewart. He fought in the Contender Series. And uh, he had one win over uh, Charles Bird as well. So uh, Patolo, I think, is much more active. I think he seems like the more promising fighter at this point. And uh, that two-year layoff from Marquez is kind of a concern. So I'll pick Patolo in this one. Um, did you watch much footage on these guys, Carl? You uh, you kind of in the dark here. I caught, I caught a little bit of it. Um, I watched like Marquez Patolo's record. I watched the Darren Stewart fight because that's the common, common opponent between the two of them. Uh, with Patolo, um, I think... He started off his career as a welterweight and then moved up to middleweight, which I think is the yep. right move because he looks so much healthier at that class. Um, I think he works the body well. Um, I do think that 
the pressures of fighting in the octagon affect him maybe more than others do. He admitted when he first fought at UFC 243, 60,000 people there. He admitted, hey, I didn't perform that day, just the occasion didn't get to me. So that can either work as a benefit for him because he's fighting in front of an empty arena, so he's not going to feel that pressure. Or it could work the opposite way when he thinks, hey, I'm on the main card of a pay-per-view. Oh my God, what's going to happen here? So it could go either way with him. He also has a tendency, I think, for Marky is, I think when he's out in the open, he's a pretty solid striker, quite patient. But he does have a tendency to get into these clinch wars and to get into these ground exchanges, which I don't think plays to his advantage. I mean, getting submitted by Darren Stewart, as much as I do like Darren, he's not an out-and-out grappler. So that's a bit of a blemish on his record. If Julian Marquez was healthy, I would have picked him to win this fight. Because I saw what he did on the Contender Series against Phil Hawes, who had a lot of hype behind him. Um, I think he's a much more clinical finisher. You look at his record, all of his wins by stoppage, six by knockout. But you look at the reason why he's been out of action for so long. Upper body injury, a lot of recuperation time, hasn't fought since the ultimate fight finale. And we saw with Conor McGregor how badly affected he was by ring rust. So I don't think we're going to see the best Julian Marquez out there. Yeah, man, good points. You did your research on this one. A lot of good stuff. I forgot about the Callum Potter loss. That was a really bad loss. Um, that was a welterweight, like you mentioned, 185, much better for him. And I I honestly forgot all about the Impa Kasaganai fight, too. Uh, Patolo hung in there tough against a really good fighter. And he was beating Darren Stewart and then got caught in that choke. So I definitely see what you mean. He's being a, a bit fragile on the ground. And Marquez has had his fair share of injuries. I did just double-check. Two-and-a-half-year layoff. So... Anytime a guy's coming off of a year and a half, two and a half year layoff, something like that, I always question them being a favorite in the fight, especially when they had some injuries and especially weren't they, when they weren't even that great of a fighter before the, the long layoff. So no way you could be betting Marquez as a favorite here. I personally will probably pick Patolo by knockout as my official pick. Uh, but you you did some great research here with the Patolo and the body uh, body punches. That's a great point. He is a really good body puncher. So I'm going to go with a Patolo second-round knockout. What's your pick for this one, Carl? I'm, I'm favoring Marquez. I think Marquez is more clinical finisher. Um, and I don't think Marquez may be going to handle the pressure that Marquez can bring. Where I do have some issues where it comes to Marquez, though, I don't think his takedown defense is very good. He got out wrestled by guys who I think struggle in that area. And also as well, he carries a lot of muscle for a middleweight. So if the fight goes on long, I think Vitolo has a better chance. But I do think Marquez is going to get that, that knockout. So I'm gonna say I'm gonna say second round knockout. Nice, nice. I like when we disagree on picks. Yeah. I hope we don't disagree about general things though. Because that would make a very conflicted show. <laughs> no, no, we're, we have the same. We're on the same page. Different, different uh, winner though. Because I think we see the dynamic of the fight being similar, but picking different sides. To be fair, with some of the predictions I made at two fifty-seven, people should just ignore the prediction side of the show. <laughs> oh yeah, and that was a tough fight to predict. I mean, I went like four for eleven on picks for that fight or for that card. So got called with no right problem there. So I'm happy about that. Yeah, I picked I, so see, I'm even worse. <laughs> this one's going to be interesting to see, though. It's Pedro Munoz taking on Jimmy Rivera. Now, this isn't the first time that these two have fought. Their first match took place 
uh, back in November 2015. Uh, Rivera winning that one by split decision. And as we sort of touched on before when we talked about Corey Sandhagen, Bantamweight is absolutely stacked right now. You have got a truckload of viable contenders. Could we see Jimmy Rivera or Pedro Munoz re-entering that discussion with a win? I think so. I definitely think so. Especially considering Munoz very likely should have won his last fight. I did score Munoz 49-46 uh, for that one in Edgar. So I consider that one one of the worst decisions all year. And Rivera is an amazing fighter. I mean, I'm such a big fan of both of these guys, but I might be a bigger fan of Jimmy Rivera at this point because he, he's just incredible. His boxing is great. Um, he can hit offensive takedowns as well, but it really is about his boxing. I think Jimmy Rivera is probably top five boxers in the entire UFC. I mean, he was beating Peter Yan for a majority of their fight. He got caught with some some big punches and dropped at the end of those rounds and lost that fight, but that was a razor-close decision. And Munoz is an incredible boxer as well. So if you haven't seen their first fight, I recommend you go watch it. It was a great back-and-forth fight. I disagree with it being a split decision. I thought that Rivera won rounds one and three pretty clearly. But Munoz was getting stung early. He fought back. He started hurting Rivera in the later rounds and made those last two rounds really competitive. So it was a great fight. I thought Jim Rivera won it. Did you watch that first fight, Carl? I did, yes, and I'm in the same boat as you. I thought I didn't see split decision. Um, I thought Jimmy Rivera took that one. I would say 29-28. Yeah, good. Glad we're both on the same page. So, I don't see it being extremely different from the first fight. I think both these guys have gotten a lot better, but I don't see uh, Munoz really surpassing the skill level of Rivera. And Munoz did just have a competitive decision with with Frankie Rivera or or. Frankie, Frankie Edgar. Um, yeah, Frankie Edgar. Um, Too many Riveras in the UFC. Yeah, right. A lot of a lot. There's a lot of Hispanic last names: Martinez, Sanchez, Rivera. A lot of Riveras. Um, hard to keep track of them all times. <laughs> but what I was saying, what I was saying is, last night's Frankie Edgar fight might kind of lower the stock of Munoz a little bit, you know, because Munoz did just have a competitive decision with this guy. He landed some big punches on Edgar, but Edgar took them well, and Sandhagen was able to put him out in 30 seconds. I don't think that that really lowers the stock of Munoz because it was such a flash knockout. We didn't get to see the fight play out. And, I mean, Edgar looked really game against Munoz, so there's no shame in that in that loss. Um, but I think, I think it is a bit telling how much Munoz struggled with Edgar, how much he got hit by Edgar. I think that his defense isn't quite as good as Rivera's. So I think the result will be pretty similar here. Rivera outboxing to a decision that's using his superior hands, using that great leg kick, calf kick of his, and likely just winning a close but competitive decision here. And Carl, keep talking. I'm just going to turn my air conditioning off for five seconds real quick. Of course. I think one of the big things about Pedro Munoz that stands out for me, whether you consider this a good thing or a bad thing, I think he's become a lot more comfortable with his striking uh, and maybe to his detriment because Pedro Munoz's go-to for a long time was his submission gear. He had one of the best guillotines in that division. Uh, and for whatever reason, obviously his striking's improved. His last two wins have come from strikes, Brian Caraway and then Cody Garbrandt. There's an argument to be made. Is he starting to fall in love with his hands a little bit? Because he had a lot of opportunities against Aljamain Sterling to try and take this to the ground. He seemed willing to stand and trade and was a big part of the reason why he ended up losing that fight. So is Munoz maybe doing himself a disservice by being too comfortable a striker? 
I don't think so, actually. I think he is better of a striker than he is a, a, of a grappler because he's really a better defensive grappler than he is an offensive. He has great takedown defense. He uses that guillotine as a great takedown defense, and he's choked a lot of people out with it. But in terms of hitting his own offensive takedowns, keeping top position, that's not really Munoz's style. So I like the way he's developed. He's got a great front kick. He's got high output. He's got great boxing. He can even target the legs and chop down his opponents really well. So Munoz targets the legs, body, head very well. I think he's a dangerous striker, but I just don't think he's too defensively sound. I think he kind of relies on his chin. I mean, he's insanely durable. He ate some big shots versus Cody Garbrandt and just was content to brawl and got the better of that brawl. He had a, a better chin and was able to put Garbrandt out in that crazy fight. Um, but I think he's a bit too content with getting hit. And I think that we see the better superior boxer, Rivera, just take advantage of that. And, I mean, Rivera is still extremely sharp. He's kind of at the tail end of his career. He had a really long career before the UFC. And he might even left some of his best years behind him. But he's still really sharp. He just uh, outboxed Cody Stamen to a decision, a very clear Good decision advice. there. Yeah, and Stamen is a 135-er traditionally. And that fight was at 145. Um, so it wasn't the greatest win in terms of uh, – maybe I'm wrong. Oh, no, these guys are both bantamweights. I'm sorry. That that fight was at featherweight, though. I'm not just yeah. making this up, right? Uh, two, yeah, yeah two, um, two bantamweight fighters, but they fought at featherweight because it was short notice. Okay, yeah. So I guess that doesn't have much of an effect uh, either way. Um, he still looked very sharp in that fight. So I'm going with Rivera decision here. Uh, what about you, Carl? I'm in the same boat as you. I think the real convinced the, – the thing that convinced me most to go with Jimmy Rivera – and this is strange, considering he lost that fight, was the performance against Piotr Jan. Because I agree with you, I thought that Jimmy looked fantastic in that fight. And to be honest, I, I, I'm I, not really as high on the Piotr Jan hype train because of the Jimmy Rivera fight. Because he was getting outboxed for, I would say, four-fifths of that of each of those first and second rounds. Yeah. But he landed yeah, those I, I big thought... strikes at the end, and that's ultimately what won Piotr Jan the fight. I think Jimmy Rivera is a great counter-striker, a lot of volume, stays active, very hard to take down, so if Munoz does try to grapple with him, uh, that's going to be a bit of an ask. Uh, biggest issue I have when it comes to Jimmy Rivera, though, he just does not have the power. I mean, he is a great, busy striker, but he just doesn't have that knockout ability that you maybe need. Outside of the Marcus Brimage fight, he doesn't have that. Someone on the internet compared him to sort of like a male Tisha Torres, and I've just got that image <laughs> in my head. But, and it, it just fits. Yeah, that's not bad, actually. Um, I think he's kind of got like an on on and off type of style, too, where the Marais fight, he got knocked out 30 seconds in there. Uh, the Sterling fight, I thought he looked particularly bad in that fight. I mean, Sterling is one of the best fighters on the roster, and he really just shut down a lot of Rivera's attack there. But I think he can have those kind of on and off nights. And as you we were talking about in the Peter Yan fight, I mean, I think it's very likely that Rivera won 10, 11, 12 minutes of that fight, but still lost that decision because of those big knockdowns at the end there. And I kind of see what you're saying about uh, power. I, I guess Munoz does have the more power of the two. Um, but even so, I think he should be able to use his boxing to to keep Munoz away from him and to get the better of those exchanges. Really wish this fight were five rounds. We saw these guys go three rounds the first time, and it was really competitive. 
we have an idea that Rivera is the better fighter, but that fight wasn't extremely conclusive. So five rounds would really tell us who the better fighter is at this point. And, but I'm still happy with the fight no matter what. It's a great rematch. Um, I don't completely understand the matchmaking. I think both these guys could have gotten better fights, but uh, it's still going to be a great fight regardless. Uh, you going with Rivera by decision uh, as your official pick, Carl? Rivera by decision. Nice, nice. We agree on this one. Fight number three on our main card. Now, if I was booking this card, we criticize the UFC a lot when it comes to card placements on this show. Uh, this is another one which I'm not entirely sure about. This, in my opinion, should have been the core main. Kelvin Gastelum is taking on Ian Heinish in the middleweight division. And a lot of people, I hate to use cliches, are maybe calling this one a crossroads fight when it comes to Kelvin Gastelum because we all remember UFC 236, one of the best fights of the year when he took Israel Adesanya all the way ended up losing that decision and a lot of people sometimes think that the worst loss that you can have in your MMA career is a close decision in a big title match because if you put in the performance of a lifetime and end up coming up short you mentally think to yourself hey what do I need to do to actually get that win and there's not I mean a lot of people think that GSP Versus Johnny Hendricks. Hendricks was never the same after that. And a lot of people are saying Kelvin Gastelum maybe just hasn't been his set himself after the Adesanya fight. Yeah, I think uh, Gastelum needs to take a page out of Caitlin Chukagian's book because Chukagian got dominated by Valentina Shevchenko. She dusted herself off, got right back to it, and she did lose that fight to Andrade, but she beat Calvillo, she beat uh, Shevchenko's sister, and she had a great conclusion to her 2020. So a lot of credit to Jukagian, but I, I agree that that is hard to to overcome, that that loss. I mean, especially a five-round title loss. You see close decisions like the, the Felder-Hooker fight is a good one. That five-round decision, you put everything into that, then you hear your, the other guy's name read. Uh, I mean, it's just tragic. I feel for these fighters when, when that moment happens. But John Jones versus Dominic Reyes. Yeah, that's another one too. I mean, looking back on the what's happened since Reyes since then, you know, I mean, man, that's cha- changes the guy's life based on the judges not being uh, able to score a fight correctly. Um, but I don't have much sympathy for Kelvin Gaston, honestly. I think that uh, I've never been that high on Kelvin as a fighter. I think he's always been pretty overrated. I mean. He has never knocked out a guy who's less than like 40 years old or something like that. No, I think it, there's some crazy stat where he's never knocked out a guy who was less than 10 years older than him. And, you know, with Jacare at the tail end of his career, uh, it's possible Jacare might get cut, might not get re-signed. That would mean Kelvin Gaslam has no wins over active UFC fighters. Um, so that kind of goes to show where his career is at. He's taken advantage of beating a lot of older, past their prime guys. And when he's fought fighters on his level, he's lost the majority of those fights. I mean, I think his past two performances were particularly pathetic. Uh, the Darren Till fight, nothing happened in that fight. It was just a super low output striking fight. Neither guy did enough to really win that fight. And the Hermanson fight, he he's in top position. He ends up getting caught in a heel hook. He did not look like he had great grappling defense. I mean, I think the guy is supposed to be... Uh, like a purple or a brown belt at a 10th planet or something like that. It looked like he had never seen a heel hook in his life before. Um, so two bad losses. Um, now, uh, you can talk a little bit more about uh, Ian Heinish. I'll let you start with this one. You can talk about your thoughts on these guys while I collect myself here. Yeah. 
Well, Ian Heinish, I think, is a strange one for me because, don't get me wrong, I think Ian Heinish is a very talented fighter and he's got a fantastic bike story with the whole Vikas Island thing and the drug smuggling. So I understand from that perspective why the UFC are as high on him as what they are. But I always get the impression with Heinish that he gets pushed into these big matches that he's not 100% ready for. Because I remember, I think it was his third fight, he got Derek Brunson, UFC 241. And again, I thought, I think Ian Heinish is an okay fighter. I loved his performance against Gerald Merchart, which was probably his best performance in the UFC so far. And while I think he's good, I don't think he's good enough to be getting top 10 matches against division gatekeepers. I think he's one of those solid lower top 15 guys, sort of like, well, he just got cut, but sort of like a shoe face Carlos or someone along those sort of lines. I would have maybe given the Gaslam fight to someone who maybe had a bit more upside. Like, a, I think Gaslam versus Shabazian could be the hell of a fight. Yeah, true. That's a good point. And I think Shabazian, that match, I favors him. So that would have been a good fight for him to get back on. But, yeah, you, you hit the nail on the head with Heinrich. He, he's a weird fighter. He... I think he really only thrives in like defensive grappling type mm. of fights because his first UFC, first two UFC fights uh, against Cesar Mutanche Ferreira and Antonio Carlos Jr., he had great takedown defense, great cardio in those fights. I became a big fan of Ian Heinrich based on those fights because he just was so gritty in those fights. He wouldn't go down. He had great takedown defense. He ended up on top position and he really ended up like out grappling these two great multiple degree black belts in his first two UFC fights. So I became a big fan of the guy. But ever since then, I've been kind of let down. I think that I realized that he's not a good distance striker. When these guys are at range and they're kickboxing, I don't think he has many tools. I think he's very limited. I think he got a bit lucky versus Mearshart, honestly, because I, going into that fight, picked Mearshart to win. I thought Mearshart was the better striker, but Highness just used his athleticism, his power to get that big right hook and was able to put Mearshart out. But if we see that fight play out over 15 minutes, I actually feel like there's a good chance that Mearshart is able to pull off the victory. But we only got to see about a minute of that. So I've been let down a bit by Highness. He got outstruck by Brunson. He got outstruck by Omari Akhmedov. And I just haven't seen great things um, from him since then. So in terms of distance striking here, you got to favor Kelvin Gaslam. Um, even though he is kind of low output, he is... Uh, power reliant, reliant on knockouts. I think he should be the better striker here. And as long as Kelvin Gaston like throws strikes, he throws 30, 40 strikes around, he should win. If he throws 20 strikes around like he did versus Till, he's going to give Heinish a chance to have an opportunity to win. And Gaslam isn't going to offensively wrestle Heinish. That's not his style. So maybe we see Heinish look to hit some offensive takedowns. He does shoot offensive takedowns. He shot a lot versus Akhmedov and versus Brunson. and wasn't very successful at getting them down. But we know Gaslam is not the best defensive grappler. And we might actually see Heinish take down Gaslam and outgrapple him. So I'll let you go with your official prediction on this one before I give mine, Carl. What are you thinking as an official pick here? Well, I'm not entirely sure if Heinish is going to go for takedowns because of what I've seen from Kelvin Gastelum, I think his sprawl is actually really, really good. So I think he's actually a pretty good, um, have good defensive takedowns. I think if he does go on the ground, as we saw against Hermanson, then it does become an issue. Um, I don't think that's going to be the case, though. I think on the whole, they're going to try and keep it standing. 
One of the big concerns I have with Ian Heinish, and I saw this against Derek Brunson, and I saw this against Akhmedov, if he does face early adversity, he just seems to go in himself. I think especially we saw that against Akhmedov. Akhmedov rocked him, uh, I think, in the first two minutes of that fight, and I don't think Heinish was ever 100% after that. And he started, yeah, point. he started very well against Derek Brunson, rocked Brunson in like the first 10 seconds. But once Brunson started recovering and started bringing the fight to him, Einish again just seemed to go into himself and just think, well, what am I going to do now? So I think if Kelvin does crack him early, which he's more than capable of doing, because we've seen Kelvin drop, I think he dropped like seven middleweights in a row. Yes, a lot of them passed their best, but he has that to his name. Drop rocked Adesanya, and I think he's the only person to ever do that. Um, I think it could be a long night for Ian Heinish. I don't think Kelvin gets the knockout. I think Kelvin gets back on track here. Um, so I'm going to say Kelvin by decision. Nice. I like that pick. I, I do. I, I expect it to be a close decision. And if I could trust Kelvin Gaston to do the right things, I think this yeah. is a good matchup for him. But uh, I'm pretty low on Gaston right now. And I think I'm actually going to pick Ian Heinish because – I just think he's the much more athletic fighter. He's the much more natural middleweight. And I think he just has a lot more initiative and, you know, activity. And I think if this is a close decision, I think that Heinish is going to be hustling a lot more, using his athleticism and finding a way to win this decision. It's not a super confident pick, uh, but looking at the betting odds for this one, we got Gaslam as a minus 200 favorite. There's no way you can be trusting him at minus 200. Maybe it's not that. No, it's minus 220. No, I think 140 for me is where Gaslam should be. Uh, oh, minus 140? Yeah, like a slight favorite, right? Yeah, I agree with like a slight favorite. But right now he's minus 225, which puts his chances at like 68%. So I think that the value is on Ian Heinish here. Um, I think it's like... 60 40 for gaslam in my opinion so like you said minus 150 is is a pretty accurate but um i'm gonna go out on a bit of a limb here and go with uh Heinish by decision i just think he he hustles a little bit more does a little more activity and wins the fight in the eyes of the judges but i'm not expecting a, a great fight i'm expecting kind of a, a boring fight so maybe it's better to not put this fight as the co-main event and he's also a naturally bigger fighter as well, Ian Heinish, because he is built like a truck. Yeah, yeah, There's that Rikers Island makes you yeah, good good uh, <laughs> shout on that. If you haven't if you haven't uh, seen the Ian Heinish story, just Google Ian Heinish Rikers Island. He wrote like an essay about it. It's a great read. Certainly so. Um, what are we going to get a good read from our core main event? So it's in the women's flyweight division. Again, another one where you can maybe raise questions, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail. Macy Barber is back in action up against Alexa Grosso. Um, now, a lot of people were maybe, dare I say, a bit irked by Macy Barber getting this position on the card. And I know that Chris Weidman and Uriah Hall was supposed to be the core main. This got bumped to this position. But a lot of people made this point. Macy Barber, yes, a lot of hype and a lot of fanfare around her. She hoped to be the youngest champion in UFC history. Lost that fight against Roxanne Modafferi, which was one of the big upsets of 2020. And yet, over a year on the sidelines, coming off a loss, and while Roxanne Modafferi has her next fight on the prelims of fight night, Barber steps into a pay-per-view co-main. Admittedly, a very compelling one, but still a pay-per-view co-main nonetheless. Yeah, great points there. I don't think it was necessarily intentional to put Barber as the co-main event, but 
Um, they did give her some favorable treatment. So I we tweeted about this uh, earlier a few days ago, and I thought it was kind of funny. These this is the co-main event. I hadn't even realized until just a few days ago. But my friend uh, Ozzy P replied that. Grasso is the A side. Now, I think I agree with it there. I mean, if we're looking at who is closer to a title shot, um, honestly, who is more marketable? You got uh, the cute Mexican girl who has great boxing, throws 150 punches a fight, versus Macy Barber, who's kind of, I don't know, just got this weird toxic personality, super overconfident in herself. Definitely didn't do any self, herself any favors by kind of denying that loss to Roxanne Montefiore. But yeah, good shout on the Montefiore fight. Uh, amazing fight. One, I think it's the second biggest upset of the entire 2020. I was completely wrong about this one. I did not give uh, Roxanne much of a, a chance. And then she pulls off the crazy upset as like a plus 600 underdog. And the funniest part about that whole fight is the doctor coming in after the second round and saying, oh, she's got a partially torn ACL. She's fine. And they just let her fight. He was able to determine that her ACL was torn by just touching it. That was great. Yeah, and I think number one for the biggest upset was another women's flyweight bout. That was Agapova versus Dobson. I think you posted that never bet on women's MMA after that. You are correct. Yeah, I'm on a I'm on a brutal streak of betting on women's mixed martial arts right now. I've actually uh, unofficially retired from betting women's mixed martial arts, but I did pick Carol Rosa by domination last night, and I picked Lauren Perca- Laura Procopio. So I went two for two last night. So I'm on a hot streak. So watch out. <laughs> And I will say, for all the ridicule we give this fight, I actually think it's one of the more compelling fights on the main card because I think both of them have strengths which play into the weakness of another and vice versa. Because with Barber, you've got a girl who is... I mean, for someone of her age, I mean, she's only 21, 22 years old, she is as strong as an ox. And we've seen that in terms of her grappling, uh, the way she outmuscled an admittedly tiny Hannah Cyphers. And then just that brute power to be J.J. Aldrich and then Gillian Robertson. So she is very strong, especially in the clinch. But as we saw with Grasso, Grasso is one of the best pure boxers in that division. Um, so I think, and as we saw when it came to Macy Barber and J.J. Aldrich, Barber does have some issues in terms of the striking side of the game. So I'm very intrigued to see who's made the most improvements between the two. Is Alexa a better grappler is Alexa's grappling better than Macy's striking, whose weakness is less weak, as it were? True. I, I agree. It is pretty compelling, honestly. I mean, after thinking about this fight, um, I think it is a, an interesting matchup. I'm concerned about Barbara, though, because she is coming off the injury, the ACL injury. Mm-hmm. She showed a lot of weakness, a lot of rawness in that fight against Roxanne Matafari and how much time has she had to really improve on her skill because she's been recovering from this injury so long I, I I would be interested to go back and look at her Instagram look at the timeline to see when she finally got back in the gym but I think we can all agree that Grasso is the better striker here she's got the the better boxing of the two but like you said Barbara's got that muscle that power she can sometimes wing some crazy strikes and be able to hurt her opponents jj aldrich was boxing her up but she was able to just rock aldrich and put her away she's got great finishing instincts so i kind of see it as like a technician versus athleticism i think grasso's got the much better technique and even in terms of grappling i don't think barbara is that great of an offensive grappler i think 
I've actually seen her get outgrappled a lot in her LFA fights uh, coming in in the UFC against, I think, uh, Jamie Colleen and Audrey Perkins. Those are both close fights where um, Barbara spent a lot of time on bottom. But she's great at coming back from adversity and, yes. and being able to finish fights. So I got to give her some credit for that. Um, but I don't think Barbara has much success taking uh, um taking Grasso down. Asparza was able to take Grasso down a few times, but Grasso was able to push off on the hips, get back up to her feet, not give up very dominant positions on the mat. And come on, let's be real. Asparza is a much, much better grappler than Barber is. So yes. I don't think you can really compare them too much. So I really like Grasso's chances here. I don't think that she gets taken down. I don't think she spends too much time on her back. And I think that the striking really favors her. So as long as Grasso is able to avoid that big power strike from Barber, I think she should be the better boxer. She should have better volume. And I think uh, Grasso probably boxes her up to a decision. I've uh, I've been looking at Grasso's record in the UFC. She's 4-3 and three so far. She's alternated wins and losses. It's interesting to note that her losses have all come against primarily grapplers. So it was Felice Herbig, Tatiana Suarez, nor Shimon Luzon Suarez, who is just a monster on the ground. And then Carla Vesparza, who again, create technical wrestler. Her wins primarily have come against strikers. So you look at like Heather Clark, Carolina, Randa Marcos, Kim Ji Young. So it really does depend on which approach Macy's going to take. Is she going to try and stand and trade? Is she going to try and utilize her wrestling maybe a little bit more? It's a tough one, this. I'm favoring Grasso as well. And I think the main thing is because of the ACL. Now, uh, the medical profession has got a hell of a lot better when it comes to knee injuries and ACL injuries. At one point in any sport, whether that was combat sports or soccer or football or anything like that, an ACL used to be a career ender. But it's still a severe injury. We saw that with Thiago Sanchez. He did his ACL in. And even though he looked good at times against Glover, it wasn't 100% the same Thiago Santos as before the injury. Yes, Macy's young, but it's a big injury to come back from. And throwing her into this kind of fight straight away, I'm favouring Grasso for that reason. But if Macy Barber yeah. dominates on the ground and gets an easy 30-27 decision, that wouldn't surprise me either. But I'm favouring Grasso to do it on the feet. I think I would be pretty surprised, honestly, because um, the only girl we've really seen dominate Grasso on the mat was Suarez. And we know Suarez is not only a great wrestler, but she's also a great submission grappler, too. But more wrestlers who focus on control, like Marcos and like Esparza, they both took Grasso down four times. But Grasso was able to win the decision over Marcos on the judges' scorecards. And I honestly gave Grasso, the fight versus Esparza, I thought she won rounds one and three of that fight, um, especially that fight being in Mexico. I was pretty shocked to see that one go to Esparza, but I really don't think it's a, a great chance that Barbara hits takedowns at all. I don't really recall her hitting many offensive takedowns in her entire MMA career. I mean, I think Mallory Martin was the one taking her down. I think she spent some time on her back, like I said, in the Jamie Colleen fight. So Barbara getting uh, takedowns, it would be pretty unlikely to me. And even if she does, I think Grasso has a good chance at pushing off the hips, getting back up to her feet, and just getting back to outboxing. So 
I'm concerned about Barber, especially considering her style is so athletic reliant. If Grasso was the one coming off the ACL injury, I would be a little more willing to trust her because she's kind of bread and butter, just boxing, not too crazy of a style. But Barbara has got a lot of explosive techniques. She's really reliant on her power and her athleticism. So that's not something you want to see coming off of that ACL injury. So I like Grasso here. In terms of bets, we got Grasso at minus 150, 60%. I think you could go closer to uh, 65%, honestly. I think that Barber might be still getting a bit too much respect in the betting line. So uh, Grasso's decide here for me. Um, I'm going with decision. Are you going decision as well, Carl? I'm going Grasso decision. Um, nice. Alexa Grasso's last stoppage win was in 2014 back in Invicta. And you also made a really good point as well. The Grasso, even though her takedown defense isn't great, she does try and make things happen off her back. We saw that against the Sparza. Nearly submitted the Sparza as well. She got that armbar in the third round. Yep, really underrated that, yeah. fight that act. I remember watching that. I was, I was surprised by how good that fight was. I agree. One of the best women's fights ever, honestly. So, so exciting. I tell you what. I think I said this before a couple of months ago. Women's flyweight, it's always seen as a bit of a joke division in the UFC. But you look at some of the girls who are starting to enter the top 15. That division is slowly starting to get a hell of a lot better. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it's hard when, it's hard to get too much better when you still got like Chukagian at the top and just knowing her style isn't isn't the most exciting. But yeah, there is promise. We were talking about Miranda Maverick on this undercard. Uh, she's promising. Uh, Grasso could be a, a future title challenger. And I guess I guess the next fight will be Shevchenko versus Andrade. I'm pretty sure. So um, that'll be a fun, entertaining fight as well. So yeah, 125 is much better than 35 and 45. That's easy. Yeah. Well, let's be honest. Two blocks fighting in the street would be better than women's 145 right now. <laughs> right. Well, we got that immaculate title, uh, title fight coming up between, uh, the ever so deserving Megan Anderson and Nunes. Time for us to talk about our main event on this one. The welterweight title is on the line. Kamara Usman makes the third defense of his belt up against Gilbert Burns. Now I'm going to set the scene for a lot of people to try and just paint a little bit of a story here. Now back in September 2019, Gilbert Burns fought Alexei Kunchenko on the prelims of Fight Night Uruguay. 18 months later, four wins in a row, here he sits ahead of the biggest fight of his career against one of his old teammates, Kamara Usman. Where do you stand on this one, um, John? Because this looks like it's very hard to get excited about Kamara Usman fights, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail when we talk about him. But I have to say, I'm more intrigued by this fight than maybe some of the more everyday fans are. Mm, I don't know. My excitement level is not too high. I think you might be a little more excited for it than me. Um I think you did a, a good thing by bringing up his welterweight run, Gilbert Burns' welterweight run. We obviously know he was a lightweight. He had a up-and-down career at lightweight, faced some losses early on in his career, but he started to battle back. He had nice wins uh, over OAM, Mike Davis, but he moved up to welterweight, and he right away he fought two tough welterweights, Alexei Kanchenko, who was 20-0 undefeated at the time, and then Gunnar Nelson. And both those fights were 29-28 decision wins. They weren't the most dominant fights. They were close competitive fights, but also clear wins for Burns. Then, of course, he uh, knocked out Damian Maia in round one with that nasty left hook. He dominated Tyron Woodley. So I think that Burns has kind of had a 
favorable run to the title. He hasn't really run into too many difficult matchups. I mean, like Leon Edwards, for instance, would be a really tough matchup for him. Colby Covington would be a tough matchup for Burns. And he's kind of, uh, even Masvidal would be tough. So he's kind of gotten his way around all those guys and is getting the title shot anyway. But I think the most telling fight when coming down to analyzing this fight is the Damian Maya fight. And even though Burns knocked out Maya in round one of that fight, I think we actually learned a lot more negatives about Burns than positives in that fight because we saw Damian Maya pressure Burns. Burns was moving back right away. He was getting stuck against the cage. He, Burns doesn't really have that footwork to keep himself off the cage. And I believe that was in the big cage as well versus Maya. So now we're in the small cage at the apex. He's going to have a small area, and he's going to have to avoid the pressure of one of the best cage craft pressure fighters in the sport, Kamara Usman. And really just seeing the way that Gunnar Nelson was able to pressure Burns, keep Burns against the fence. I mean, Gunnar Nelson put Burns against the fence for five, six, seven minutes of their fight. And I just don't think that Nelson is anywhere near the caliber of Usman is. So just seeing those few couple of fights, seeing guys being able to pressure Burns, get his back up to the cage, was really all I needed to see to to know that Kamara Usman likely does his thing here and puts Burns against the cage and just grinds him out like he does. Um, so that's my introduction. I have some more thoughts, but I'll, I'll pass it back to you uh, for now, Carl. What are you thinking initially here? And I think as well, if you look at, uh, if you count his lightweight record as well, got out-muscled by uh, Pizarres in his first loss, which that's a win that hasn't really aged well. I think when it comes to Kamara Usman, I just want to go through a list of some of the people that Usman's beaten in this run to the title. Jorge Masvidal, Colby Covington, Tyron Woodley, RDA, Damian Meyer, and Leon Edwards quite early in his run. So he's beaten a who's who of great welterweight fighters. But... And, he, and if he wins this fight, I believe he also breaks uh, GSP's record for the most uh, wins in UFC welterweight history. So when you look at this guy on paper, you think this guy potentially should be heralded as one of the great welterweights. Like he's up there in that sort of Matthews, Robbie Lawler sort of realm. I don't think he's ever going to beat GSP in terms of grandeur. But that fighting style is so negatively received that I don't think he'll ever get the praise and the recognition he maybe deserves for it. Like, a lot of people make the John Fitch comparisons when it comes to Usman. But this, to me, is just another example of that. Because Fitch was another guy who was just steamrolling everybody. 30-26 all the time. And all he ever heard was, oh, John Fitch, so boring. Oh, Kamaru Usman, so boring. I even put a poll up to predict this fight and ask the people to post who they thought was going to win. And all the comments were just saying, I'm not going to bother watching this or snoozeman by decision, something along those sort of lines. Yeah, I mean, the disrespect is crazy that Usman gets. I mean, you really got to question where it all comes from. I mean, I honestly think there could be like a racial component to it because Usman is like is is hated amongst fans. I don't get it. I mean, the guy is he has great interviews. The way he beat Tyron uh, Tyron Woodley and his interview with holding his daughter, he said, "I might not be the best wrestler. I might not be the best striker, but when it comes to mixing this shit up, I'm the best." I don't even know what he said. I'm the best motherfucker at welterweight right now. I love that. I wasn't I wasn't on the Usman train before that, but after seeing him cut that interview, I said, you know what? I'm a fan of this guy. And, I mean, his style isn't the most exciting, but it's just suffocating. It's technical. It's amazing control. And I think you really got to appreciate the intricacies of MMA to appreciate him 
the way he clinches opponents, he controls them, he neutralizes them. I mean, he takes dangerous fighters and puts them against the cage and, and makes them pretty much worthless. And I, I find that entertaining to watch. I find it entertaining to see how he's able to just drain the will from his opponents. I mean, you saw Masvidal slowly lose that that swagger, that aura that he has to him. He kind of was a bit cocky in round one. Masvidal might have won round one, but then slowly, slowly, Usman just sucked all that energy out of him and was able to defeat him uh, pretty handily. So I enjoy watching him fight. I understand why some people don't, but... Um, I think you really got to appreciate every aspect of MMA to appreciate Kamaru Usman as a fighter. I mean, as as a fight fan, as somebody who does want to be entertained and want to see these wild brawls, I can understand Kamaru Usman isn't exciting television, but there's a point where you have to appreciate and respect the level of dominance that he's showing. And in my opinion, I think he's reached that. I think the big reason why I'm maybe more intrigued by this fight than what maybe you are is because... Of what happened against Colby Covington. Part of the reason Usman versus Colby turned out the way it did, and I have to be honest, if you go back and watch the 245 preview, I just crapped on that fight. I didn't think it was going to be any good at all. And it certainly it blew me away and I hold my hands up and say I got that one wrong. But <laughs> Usman versus Colby turned out the way it did because Usman was wary of Colby's grappling ability. He didn't want to take the chance and say and go to the ground with him and have Colby take advantage on the ground. But he knew he had the advantage when it came to the stand-up. And it turned into a brawl. And eventually what won that fight was Usman just having more power. Colby just being a bit pillow-fisted. And eventually those big shots wore Colby down. I bring this up because Gilbert Burns is a multiple-time jiu-jitsu champion. He is one of the best when it comes to fighting off his back. Could he maybe scare Usman into standing and trading again? And if it does turn into a stand-up fight... I think Gilbert Burns arguably has good enough, if not better, stand-up than Kamara Usman does. And I know Usman started training with Trevor Whitman. I think he's tried to iron that side of his game out. But if it does turn into a stand-up fight, I think it becomes a lot more of a lottery. Yeah, I, I agree there. Those are some good points. Um I think the striking will be very close. When they're at distance, I think it will be competitive. I think... The fact that Burns is orthodox is going to make it more competitive because Colby was southpaw, and that kind of favored Usman, that open stance matchup. But you have Burns, who's orthodox, who's going to be able to throw calf kicks, and he has very good leg kicks, heavy calf kicks. And if Usman is pressuring him, he's going to have to be weary of those calf kicks. Um, but the biggest difference in striking I see between these two guys is footwork and just ring craft. I think that Usman just knows where he is in the cage at all times. His feet are always underneath him. He's so calculated. And I just don't think that Burns has that same level of footwork and awareness uh, when it comes to where you're at in the cage. And there's an article on the fight side about um, Usman's ring craft and just how of much of an expert he is at getting his opponents to move in the direction where he wants him. And that's one of the, the best parts about Usman is the way he's able to use his striking to to pressure his opponents to get to his grappling. He really transitions everything so well. So he's not the greatest striker, but the way he moves and the way he feints and how athletic he is just makes him really effective on the feet. And in terms of Burns' grappling credentials, he is an incredible jiu-jitsu player. He has multiple, term, uh, multiple degree black belts. He's actually out-grappled uh, in pro jiu-jitsu, a lot of high-level grapplers too, but... I just see 
it not really translating well here because what I've seen from Burns against the cage is just not good. The way he, it's more of a clinch defense than a grappling defense against Usman. You really have to defend the clinch and defend uh, the body locks at Usman. And I just do not see Burns doing that. I see Burns getting stuck against the cage and Usman just riding him out there with that back clinch of his where he gets that body lock and will knee you in the thighs, stomp your feet, drag you down to the mat. And I see, I don't see Burns having much success stopping that. So I don't think that Burns' defensive uh, grappling, his jiu-jitsu, will translate very well to this fight. And I don't think that Burns will have the footwork to really keep this fight at range for long. So I do think the distance striking will be close. When it's there, I just don't see Usman giving him that range that he wants. How much do you think training with Whitman's going to change Usman's fighting style? I don't think... A massive amount because we did. He was training with Whitman for the Masvidal fight. It was supposed to be Burns. Obviously, Burns fell out. So we saw a bits and pieces of what what to expect. Uh, I don't think Whitman is going to vastly change him too much. I mean, he already got a championship coming or a champion level fighter coming to him. He's not going to let his ego affect him and try to change aspects of Usman's game. He's just going to fine fine tune. Um, what Usman has already done. So I don't think we see too much, cha- too many drastic changes. We just see a much more polished version of Usman, and we see why he's the best pound-for-pound fighter in the sport. I I have to be honest. I think if this fight had happened at UFC 251, I would have maybe favored Gilbert Burns to take it because I think he had a lot of momentum on his side after the Damian Meyer victory and obviously what he did against Tyron Woodley. And Usman, of course, not really training with Whitman all that long maybe could have opened and exposed some holes in if it was a striking exchange. But Usman's had that time to train with Whitman. It's a good seven or eight months after that fight was originally booked. And I think Gilbert's lost a lot of that momentum that maybe would have given him some help. So I think it would be better for the division if Gilbert Burns was to win, because I think he is a more exciting fighter than Kamara Usman. But I'm being realistic. I think Kamara Usman does what Usman does best, and we get a 50-45. Yeah, I'm going to go with 49-46, honestly. Um, as the official pick, I think Burns might find a way to win a round somehow, probably one of the earlier two rounds. I also have some concerns over Burns's cardio because in his his first welterweight fight, let's give him some credit, versus Konchenko, he won rounds one and two of that fight and then slowed down pretty heavily in round three. We did see him go the full five against Tyron Woodley, but that fight was just one-way traffic. He wasn't really tested too much in that fight. So I think from a cardio perspective, you got to massively favor Usman. We've seen him go that full five rounds at a high, high pace, and we just don't really know that same— we don't really have those same assurances about Burns' cardio. And one thing I have written in my notes here about that that Maya fight as well is, I mean— the fight's only two and a half minutes long. I really recommend you guys go rewatch it. I just saw how easily Burns got back to the cage. He got taken down, and he gave Maya that back clinch. You know, I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about, but you just envision Kamar Usman fighting when he's got his hands wrapped around his opponents, but he's got his, his himself behind his opponents. What Maya did was try to drag Burns down to the mat and go for a back take. But Burns was able to use his athleticism, his explosion to reverse, stand back up, and knock Us- or knock Maya out. Kamara Usman doesn't go for back takes. He will ride you against that cage in that position for five minutes, just knee you in the thighs relentlessly, and, and you won't be able to do anything. So 
that two and a half minute fight, I think, really tells the story of this fight. I think we do see uh, Usman dominate, really run away with it in the later rounds. In terms of bets for this fight, I like the Usman 4-5 decision prop. So if Usman wins by finish in rounds 4 or 5 or by decision, that bet cashes. And that's around even money. I think it was like plus 105. And I really like that. That's my favorite bet for all, pretty much all Usman fights. So that's what I'll be betting here. Usman 4-5 decision because I could see him getting that late finish uh, with the disparity in, in cardio experience. Um, so the pick for me officially will be Usman 49-46. You're going with 50-45, Carl? I'm going 50-45. Like I mentioned before, nice. I would I think it would be a great fairy tale if Gilbert Burns was to win this, considering where he was in terms of the UFC roster. But I've got to be realistic. This It feels a little bit like John Jones, Anthony Smith, where you had a guy sort of fast-track, this sort of fairy tale run up the card and just ultimately just comes up short. Oh, man, you just disrespected Gilbert Burns by comparing him to Anthony Smith. I, I'm I sorry, like Anthony Don. Smith. <laughs> I, like, I like Burns a lot, too. I mean, I, I agree. It would be cool to see him pull this off. I mean, he was in a completely different weight class just two years ago and all of a sudden moves up. But uh, I think we finally see Burns's welterweight run come to a bit of a stutter step here, and he will lose here. So we, we might be off on this one, Carl. Who knows? I mean, it's a great I, thing I about the sport. Yeah, it's, it's fun being wrong sometimes. I've been wrong a lot lately. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> been keeping track of my official bets, but I've been doing pretty shit in terms of official track bets. For, uh, so I hope to turn that around here at this event. I think we need to put a disclaimer or something. This is for entertainment. Do not take this seriously. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I expect everyone. I expect everyone to follow all of my advice one hundred percent and bet their entire bank account on everything I say. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't agree with that disclaimer. I will um, say, um, in terms of the poll I posted on uh, the main page, we got Kamara Usman predicted to win fifty six percent, Gilbert Burns forty four. So. A lot closer than, than we're making it out to be. Yeah, that is true. I mean, the current betting odds, Usman minus 280, that's like 73%. So the INC fans are, are liking Burns a lot more. You guys should go hop on that Gilbert Burns betting line uh, because there is some value according to some people. Yeah, uh, they're two for two so far. They've got uh, Max Holloway and um, Michael Chiesa and better for Conor McGregor and Alistair Overeem. So... Uh, this depends yeah, on I was whether surprised. They... What was the Overeem percentage? Wasn't it like 60-40 Overeem? Um, I have 70-30. Wow. That was, that was way off there. That, that, that fight last night looked very one-sided. Mm. Pretty sad to watch, honestly. <laughs> it was a pretty sad card on the whole, considering what happened to Frankie Edgar as well. Uh, let's try and turn this onto a bit more of a happy note just before we sign off. We don't want people to leave this show on a bit of a low note. Uh, in terms of the main card, it, what what would you say the big, big positives to come out of this card? What are the big reasons for people to say, hey, I'm going to part with my $60, $70, and I'm going to watch this main card? Um, well, I would never, ever convince someone to spend $70 on a UFC pay-per-view. There are some great alternatives out there. Um, man, you're, you're asking a tough sell. I, I think Rivera and Munoz is going to be an incredible fight. Uh, Patolo and Marquez should be an exciting fight that ends by knockout. Uh, Alexa Grasso is one of the more consistently entertaining women's MMA fighters. And you get to see Kamara Usman dominate and do his thing in the main event, rack up those title defenses, and uh, eventually set up a title fight with the next 
challenger, obviously Kamzat Chemaev will be next. And finally, one more prediction before we leave. Who's winning the Super Bowl? I'm going to go with the Chiefs. This is the. It happens in four hours. It, you guys won't won't uh, see this before I predict it, but I'm going to go with the Chiefs to win 31-24. And on that bombshell, uh, that is all the time that we have. I want to say a big thank you once again for anybody who's tuned in for the hour plus that we've been doing this. Uh, this has been INC Live. My name's been Carl Birmage. That's been John Marsh and Enemy. Uh, John, for anybody who wants to follow all your predictions, uh, where's the best place to see them? Yeah, thanks again, Carl, for having me. Always love coming on the INC show. I love the INC fans. Got a lot of love for you guys. And you can find me on Twitter at UFO underscore UFC. That's UFO underscore UFC. That's where you can see all of my official podcast posts. And I also track all my official bets publicly there. So make sure you check me out there. Give me a follow. And thanks for having me on. I'll see you guys uh, before the next pay-per-view. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, John. I'm sure you'll get all of your treats and all your snacks ready for the Super Bowl tonight. Uh, I need to go to bed because it's getting very, very late over here. Uh, this has been the INC. I've been Carl Babbage. That's been John Martian. And hope you enjoy UFC 258. And we'll be back next month to talk about that supercard, UFC 259. Bye-bye for now.